out of God's good grace, God has granted us a reservation at his table in heaven. In the meantime, he has given us a meal to share together to remember how we received this reservation and to also help us long for its quick fulfillment. We call this meal the Lord's Supper. Good morning, church. It's a great joy and a delight to stand here and share, share from God's word. Uh, thank you, Kevin, for reading and praying. Brother, I appreciate that you prayed to the Lord that I would be grounded. Um, because as I've been studying this passage, I want to be honest with the church. I'm really excited to share this because there's so much truth from this scripture about the Lord's Supper. And also because many times we don't really teach much on the Lord's Supper, right? Um, so it's important to know why we participate and what is the purpose, what is the meaning. So I'm really excited. At the same time, also a little bit anxious, okay? Because this, long, uh, this Lord's Supper is one of the most debated topic in the Christian community. There's a lot of churches that look at it differently, a lot of churches that have different belief system about it. Um, but brothers and sisters, one thing I desire this morning is even as I share from God's word that, uh, you know, I would be grounded uh, in his word. Okay. There's nothing more authoritative than his word. And as I share, you will see how I will try and support everything that I share today that the Lord enlightened me through the scripture. Okay. So I really pray and I hope uh, that we will learn and we will have clear clarity and the right understanding of the supper. Also, I just want to take a minute quickly uh, to share um, about the sermon outline. I know that we don't have the printouts today uh, because of um, some delay in that. Um, I'm so apologize for that. However, uh, I just want to encourage the church that, you know, when the sermon outline is passed on to all of you, whether it's on your phones, make full use of it. It's for your good. Okay, there are four ways, you know, I was thinking, what are four ways it can help you? One, you won't get lost in the sermon. Okay, when somebody is preaching, you can follow with them. And this is how you can interact with the sermon. The second way you can use the notes is to examine if the sermon was rightly preached from the word of God. That's what the church in Beria did. So take notes, go home and examine. The third way you can make use of these sermons note uh, is by you know discussing and reflecting on the sermon through the week discuss with your family discuss with your church members you know make full use of it and finally it prepares and helps you participate in the discussions you have in your cell groups so these are some of the benefits of the sermon notes and i want to encourage everybody to make full use of uh, these sermon notes that's passed on to you now, saying that, let's move into the sermon. And now there's a lot of ground that we need to cover. And I'll try my best to um, keep the sermon within the time. And how we're going to look at the sermon this morning is in this way. I've divided the sermon into three parts. The first part, we're going to look at the biblical foundation of the Lord's Supper. So we're going to survey through the Bible and see what the scripture tells us about the supper. Secondly, we'll try to define what the Lord's Supper is. And finally, we will look at some of the practical questions surrounding the supper and we'll draw out some applications for us so when we started the series on the whole counsel of god we considered what the bible tells us about god and we also considered what the bible tells about god and his people the israelites we started from creation 
we moved to Adam and Eve. We then saw how man fell. And because of their disobedience, they were casted out of the garden. And then we learned about Abraham, Moses, the laws, the old covenant that God made with Israelite. And then we heard about the new covenant that God would make with his people. And one of the things that we learned about the people of God is this, that the people of God are the chosen, created, marked off, rather separated people of God who believe the promises of God and who are gathered together by God in order to listen to God and obey God. So when we considered the covenant that God had with Abraham, we learned that the people of God who would assemble through Abraham would be a marked off people. You know, they'd be visibly identified through an outward ceremony called circumcision. In Genesis chapter 17 and verse 10 to 11, we read like, this is my covenant, which you shall keep between me and you and your offspring after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised. And then God says, this shall be a sign of covenant between me and you. One of the things that you and I need to note is that this sign that God is talking about here is not what saved Abraham or his family. All of God's promises to him were made before he was circumcised. His circumcision didn't mark the moment when he suddenly belonged to God. It was his faith in God's promises that made him righteous before God. And we see that in Genesis chapter 15 and verse 6. God's people have always been saved by faith in the promises of God. And they've always been marked off by a sign. The sign of the old covenant was circumcision. Now, when we come to Moses and the covenant God established with him, we learn that God confirmed the covenant with, the blood, with blood. And we read that in Exodus chapter 24, verse 3 to 8. And something very interesting when you read Exodus chapter 24 is, soon after that, verse 9 to 11, we see that Moses and the leaders, they go up to the mountain, see God, and what do, what do they do there? They partake in a meal. So the Mosaic covenant is inaugurated with uh, inaugurated by blood and followed by a meal. You see the pattern of a meal in the presence of God for those whom God has marked off or separated for himself and redeemed by God's blood actually begins in the early chapter of Exodus. The earliest roots of the Lord's Supper can be seen in the Passover meal that God commanded Israel to observe before they left Egypt. You know the story. The Egyptian Pharaoh was crushing the Israelites in slavery. God heard his people's cry. God heard his people's prayers. And God sent Moses and Aaron to rescue them. And after the 10 plagues, the last of which was the killing of every firstborn son in Egypt, Pharaoh finally let them go. Right? And the night before this final plague, God told his people in Exodus chapter 12 to kill a sheep or goat and put its blood on their doorposts. Then God said, cook this animal and eat it. But this is much more than a meal, okay? The blood on their doors is their salvation. You read that in verse 12 and 13 of Exodus chapter 12. The only reason God spared the Israelites was because they were covered by the blood of a sacrifice. God told the people later in that same chapter 
to celebrate this Passover meal every year at the time in order to remember what God has done to deliver them. In fact, God even told them something else. In verse 26 to 27, he said, kids would learn from this meal what God has done to save his people. Only those who'd been marked off or separated as belonging to the covenant community could eat this meal. Foreigners or Gentiles had to be circumcised in order to eat this. You can see that in the same chapter, verses 43 onwards. The Passover thus defined the true identity of Israel. Those who ate the meal made up the congregation. So to summarize what we see in the Old Testament about the Passover meal is this. On the night before God freed his people through the blood of a sacrifice, he gave them a meal to celebrate every year. A meal that defined them and set them apart as a nation. The whole nation and only the nation could celebrate it. As they shared this meal, they retold the story of their salvation and, bought, and brought God's past displays of grace into the present. This is the Old Testament background or the theological foundation for what the New Testament says or speaks about baptism and the Lord's Supper. The next snapshot or the next time we see about the Lord's Supper in Scripture is in the upper room on the night before Jesus was crucified. And that's the passage our dear brother read for us from Luke chapter 22, verse 14 to 20, when Jesus eats the Passover meal with his disciples. The Passover was meant to be eaten by whom? In Exodus 12, verse 46. Families, Right. It's very interesting, right? So when Jesus is eating with his disciples, he's turning his friends into family. Saying that those who receive his sacrifice are his family. And as he leads the disciples through the Passover meal, he's actually turning the Passover meal into something new. For his family or his disciples, this meal would be no longer looking backwards. It wouldn't be looking backwards to the exodus from Egypt, but rather looking forward to the deliverance that Jesus would achieve for them on the cross of Calvary. Jesus remakes the Passover meal in order to teach the disciples about the death he's about to die. He says in verse 19 that he'll give his body for them. And this won't be an accident, okay? It's not that anybody else could do that. But Jesus is saying, no, I myself, you know, this is my body. Heal himself, give his body for them and for us. He says in verse 20 that his blood will be the seal that institutes the long-awaited new covenant. Remember, we studied about the new covenant. Jeremiah chapter 31, verse 31 to 34. God promised through the prophets to make a new covenant with his people. Jesus is saying here that this is happening through his death. So when Jesus says, this is my body and this is my blood, he's making the bread and the wine signs of the new covenant. He's connecting them to God's new covenant promises, like how many of us would connect our wedding rings to the vows we make with each other on a wedding day, right? This wedding ring reminds us of our commitment to one another. It's a sign of the covenant, Jesus isn't saying that the bread and wine would transform into something else. That's not what he's saying. He's just naming the sign by what it points to. And this leads to one of the 
biggest or century-long debated topic on the nature of the elements. Where is Jesus in the supper? Where is Jesus in the supper? This was one of the most debated or fiercely debated topic during the Reformation. You know, the issue was more controversial and divisive than any other doctrinal topics. In fact, you know, the Reformation person that we all would think of is Martin Luther. He actually disagreed with um, Ulrich Zwingli, another Reformation, um, uh, another Reformation person over the supper. And that actually hindered the unity and strength of the early church or the Reformation churches in Europe. But one thing they both agreed was that the Catholic view of the supper which is called transubstantiation, was unbiblical. So here's what I want to do. I want to help the church see the four views that is there when it comes to the Lord's Supper. The first one is transubstantiation, the Catholic view. Even to this day, they believe that the bread and wine actually becomes Jesus's blood and body, even though they appear to us as bread and wine. They believe that Christ himself in this view is offered to us in the supper. Luther, you know, he comes later with this another view called consubstantiation with a slight mod modification to the Catholic view. He said that Christ was with the elements. Okay, that's why the prefix that we see, con, with the elements. He says Christ is with the elements or under the elements. For Luther, Christ was physically present with the elements and not in the elements. Then Swingley came with this another view called memorial view. And in this view, he says, the Lord's Supper is just merely a way to remember what Jesus did. He said that Jesus isn't with the elements in any way because Jesus is in heaven. But then comes John Calvin. He also rejected, uh, he also rejected the Catholic view, but he articulated a mediating view between Luther and Swingley. His view is simply called the reform view, or today we call it the evangelical view, and it's that Christ is spiritually present in the supper. This is what he says. Jesus is in heaven, so his physical body isn't with us during the supper. Calvin said that we don't bring Jesus down to us during the supper. Rather, through faith, we are brought up to him. He said that through faith, we can enjoy Jesus' presence during the supper, and he taught that the bread and the wine points to the death of Christ, that it represents the death of Christ. Like I said, this is the view many evangelical be churches believe in because it takes, uh, because it avoids, you know, that, you know, mystical tendency um, of the Catholic and Lutheran view, which says that Jesus is somehow present in or with the elements. And because it also avoids rationalizing the memorial view, which where we say it's only just merely to remember Jesus. True, brothers and sisters, we are here to remember Jesus. But as our minds remember Jesus, our hearts are meant to feel his love and grace and forgiveness through faith. Now, coming back to the biblical foundation, the next place we find about the Lord's Supper in Scripture is 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 14 to 22. In this section, Paul is actually warning the church to not take part in the meals honoring pagan gods. And to support his argument, he refers to the Lord's Supper in verse 16 and 17. Paul says that in the Supper, we are participating or sharing in the blood and body of Christ. What does this mean? 
It means that we are sharing in or experiencing the benefits of Jesus' death for us. The bread and wine are drawing us into the realities that they signify. Drawing our hearts to the forgiveness and reconciliation that Jesus purchased with his blood. In the supper, we experience genuine fellowship with Christ. And very interestingly, Paul goes on to say that we also have fellowship with each other. Look at verse 70. He says that the text says that we are one body because we all partake of the one bread. Our fellowship with Jesus creates fellowship with each other. And in the next chapter, that's the next place where we see about the Lord's Supper is in chapter 11, verses 17 to 34. In this particular text, Paul is actually rebuking the church for abusing the practice of the Lord's Supper. You know, this is one of the most read passages during the Supper. However, this is one of the passages where um, we don't really understand what is happening or we misinterpret the text. So let's just look quickly what is happening in this passage. So Paul rebukes the church for abusing the practice of the Lord's Supper. In verse 17, we see that Paul has absolutely nothing good to tell about their practice. Nothing good. He says, I don't commend this. He tells them in verse 20 that they're not even eating the Lord's Supper. Right? So what is the problem? What is the issue? In the following verse, Paul helps us see what the issue is. In verses 21 to 22, we see that the richer members of the church are treating the supper like it's their private party. And they're indulging themselves. And what are they doing? They're actually excluding the poorer members. They're looking down on the poorer members. So Paul goes on to remind them in verse 25 to 26 what Jesus did. In, in verse 26, Paul says that when we participate... In the supper, we are actually proclaiming the gospel when we observe the supper. And because the supper announces the gospel, brothers and sisters, it also carries the demands of the gospel. And that is what Paul talks about in verse 27. Therefore, he says in the following verses, 28 to 29, and this is why we should examine ourselves before taking it. And why taking it in an unworthy manner comes with great consequences. You know, what does it mean to eat and drink in an unworthy manner? There are three things that Paul is specifically talking about in this chapter, in the previous chapter. And we see that uh, in these passages. So I want to quickly mention what are those three things. Firstly, in First Corinthians chapter 10, verse 14 to 22, we saw that, you know, they were attempting to combine participation at pagan feasts with, you know, participation at the Lord's Supper. Secondly, in this particular passage, chapter 11, verse 20 to 22, we see that they were disregarding others in the body of Christ. And thirdly, they were not showing seriousness or they were disregarding what the elements represent. Paul is saying if any of us fall in these categories, we are actually taking part of the supper in an unworthy manner. And then Paul goes on to say in verse 29 that we need to discern or recognize the body. Another word that is mostly misinterpreted in our communities is this word body here in verse 29. There are two scholarly ways we can look at this. There's a group of people that believes that the body mentioned in verse 29 talks about the actual body of Jesus that was, um, that was broken and the blood that was shed on the cross. Then there's another group of people based on the context they're saying that the body here talks about the church. And in this context... I want to say that what really Paul means here is this. 
that every member of church, Jesus' church is equally valuable and loved by God. Okay, the problem in Corinth was that some of the members weren't loving others. They were excluding them. They were looking down on them. They weren't discerning the body of Christ. They didn't recognize their brothers and sisters for who they were. Paul is saying that, see, you can't be at the foot of Jesus and despise Jesus' people at the same time. If our action despises Jesus' people, we are despising Jesus' death. And when we do things that exclude or shame any of the church members, it is as if we are saying that Jesus died only for me and not for them. And church, here's the encouragement or here's the truth that you and I need to remind ourselves. God doesn't stand idly when his children are being mistreated. He always stands up for the oppressed, especially in his house, especially in his church. So those who live this way and take the supper in verse 29 to 30, clearly Paul says, will receive God's judgment. This means that Paul's point about examining ourselves in verse 20 doesn't necessarily mean to confess every sin in our lives. And let's be honest, none of us can ever do that, right? In context, Paul's point is that we need to make sure we aren't saying we love Jesus while we despise some of his people. And if we judge ourselves truly now, Paul says in verse 31 to 32, we won't be judged by the Lord in the end. And Paul concludes this whole section in verse 33 to 34 by encouraging the Corinthians to come to the supper with the mindset of serving others. The supper is meant to strengthen, not scare off those who genuinely love Jesus. Now that we have looked at the biblical foundation, it's important to see what the supper means. Over the last two to three months, I've been preparing for this sermon. I've been reading a lot, reading a lot of books, reading a lot of, um, you know, historical books to see how churches, um, you know, uh, taught and believed and what they believed. And there was this wonderful book that I came across called Understanding the Supper by Bobby Jameson. And in this book, he defines the supper like this. And I thought this was a great um, definition. So, we're going to look at this together. This is how he defines. He says, the Lord's Supper is a church act of communing with Christ and each other and of commemorating Christ's death by partaking of bread and wine and the believer's act of receiving Christ's benefit and renewing his or her commitment to Christ and his people, thereby making the church one body and marking it off from the world. I know that it's really long. And probably when you hear it, you won't understand. So we're going to look at it phrase by phrase. Firstly, he says that it's church act. It's something the entire church does. In 1 Corinthians chapter 11, Paul says five times that the supper is done when the entire church comes together. Verse 17, 18, 20, 33 to 34. Each verse says that the supper is to be done when you come together. The supper isn't a private meal. For Christian friends, or like in the Western culture, you would probably take part during weddings. It's the entire church meal to share when they come together. Next, Jameson says that in supper, we commune with Christ and each other. In the supper, we commune with Christ as we enjoy his presence through faith. You know, we feed on him in our hearts by faith. And during the supper, we commune with Christ and with others who commune with Christ, right? We're communing with and enjoying the presence of Jesus together. 
And next, Jameson says that in supper, we commemorate or recall Christ's death. Jesus tells us plainly that the supper is a way for us to remember his death for us. Luke 22, 19, do this in remembrance of me. The supper is meant to move our memory to remember what Christ did for us. His sacrifice, his suffering, his death and resurrection. The way we do this is what Jameson next says, by partaking of the bread and wine. How does this work? The act of breaking the bread reminds us of what happened to Jesus' body. The act of pouring out or drinking the cup uh, reminds us of Jesus' blood that was poured out for us. And next, Jameson says that the supper is a believer's act. The supper is something that only a Christian should participate in. We'll talk about this a little further uh, in the next section. Then Jameson next says that in supper, we receive Christ's benefits. You know, what does that mean? It doesn't mean that, you know, we are saved through it. Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 16, that in supper, we are participating or sharing in the blood and body of Christ. You know, does this mean that we don't participate and share in the blood and body of Christ apart from supper? No, not at all. It means that through supper, we can experience the benefits of Jesus' death for us again and again. Through supper, we're constantly reminded of the gospel again and again. The bread and wine are meant to regularly draw us to the realities that Jesus you know, gave up his body. He died on the cross for you and me. You know, a good illustration for this is, uh, if you think about it, when we hear a sermon, right? We are all believers, Okay, when we hear a sermon and when we hear the gospel through the sermon and when the preacher preaches Christ, it's not that we are saved at that moment, right? But for us at that moment, when we hear the gospel, it comes to you as if it was new, right? You embrace Christ anew. You trust him more fully. You submit to him more earnestly. You experience forgiveness and peace with God more intensely. Christ is already us. But when we receive it again, you know, we receive him all over again. And the physical signs of the bread and the wine support and strengthens our faith. And that is what he means when he says we receive Christ's benefits. And then Jameson goes on to say that the supper renews our commitment to Christ and his people. The supper encourages us to continue in our commitment to Christ. We remember him as our savior. And we remember him as our Lord. Few weeks back, our brother reminded us on what it means to deny ourselves, right? It means to reject ourselves as the, as the Lord of our life and replace us with Christ as the Lord of our lives. Christ is not just our Savior, but he should be our Lord and King. So if baptism is the initial formal public way that we commit to Jesus, then supper is the ongoing repeated reaffirmation that we, we are still committed to Jesus. You know, the supper is also a renewal of a commitment to the church. If we claim as our savior, if we claim Jesus as our savior, then we are necessarily claiming that Jesus' people is our people. We can't have Christ without having his family. And finally, Jameson says that that what happens as a result of the Lord's Supper, as we commune and commemorate and partake and receive and renew, 
we thereby make the church one body and mark it off from the world churches listen to me this is massive truth okay uh, this really uh, was profound to me when i was studying on this topic james is saying that when the church does communion we as believers remember jesus's death with the church and the church becomes one body you know jameson is actually basing this off from first corinthians chapter 10 verse 17 and how does this happen just look at first corinthians 10 verse 16 okay just look at look at that verse i'm not going to read the verse but paul is talking there about the vertical fellowship that you have with christ during the supper from this paul draws a horizontal conclusion in verse 17 his main point is in the middle of verse 17 look at that we who are many are one body in supper many becomes one you know paul is actually rooting for unity unity in the church in its celebration of the supper because there is one bread there is one body think about it if baptism binds one to many the lord's supper binds many to 1 now that we've considered what the supper is it's important to consider some questions that's pertaining the supper that we would be having in our minds the first question is who may take the lord's supper you know many of us um have this question in our mind and like i said you know Uh, the reason why we find ourselves coming every week and partying and not really knowing what exactly we're doing is because you know we are not taught much about this it's a sad reality you know our churches don't talk about this much i mean think about when was the last time any of us heard a sermon on the lord's supper you know when i was thinking about it in, in exodus chapter 24 when um the passover meal was ha- sorry chapter 12 when the passover meal was happening um in the following verses god tells um moses tells the people that there will be a time when your children will come and ask basically what are you doing and why are you doing this right and god is telling through moses that you have to explain it to them teach it to them right for some reason today we don't do that for the supper so brothers and sisters i pray that as we study these things we would take time to teach our children the next generation whoever it is why we do this Okay it's not that because we go to church every sunday we have to partake of this that is an unworthy manner right so the first question who may take the lord's supper the lord's supper is for believers who belong to the church okay firstly the lord's supper is for believers it's for those who have trusted christ for the forgiveness of their sins the supper proclaims that jesus shed his blood and gave his body to save sinners therefore those who believe are those who should partake of it by definition an unbeliever does not understand the connection between jesus's death and their need for forgiveness hence they should not participate and this is why in our church before we partake of the supper brothers read instructions right who should participate from the supper of course unbelievers should feel welcomed and loved by the congregation but they should also get a sense that they're outsiders you know they should see the love we have for christ and for each other and want to be part of it they need to understand that if they don't repent of their sins and trust in christ they'll remain outside of christ and his people forever so if there is anyone seated here 
who is an unbeliever or if there is anyone seated here who has been in a christian home all your life you've heard the gospel you know it in your head but it's not truly changing your life or it's not something that you truly believe in or you find yourself still being slaves to sin and not enjoying the freedom that christ offers in i want to encourage you just hear me out if anything if anything this bread and wine points to the important truth that god loves you immensely that he sent his son jesus to die for your sin jesus was crushed mocked scorned nailed to the cross for your sins and my sins he not only suffered for our sins but he bore the very wrath of god that you and i deserve to bear for all the sins that we have committed against god he bore it willingly and jesus made a way for you and me which we wouldn't have attained any other way so my dear friends if you don't believe in jesus christ i want to encourage you look to jesus for your salvation be in a relationship with god there is nothing more beautiful than that and i want to urge you do not leave this hall without knowing if you are truly his child or not secondly the lord's supper is for believers who belong to a church the new testament makes it clear that those who come to christ come into a church at pentecost those who repented and believed were baptized and added to the church acts 2 verse 38 to 41 the new testament knows nothing of churchless christians okay the new testament knows nothing of churchless christians becoming Uh, a member or having a fellowship with the church is the church's way of affirming that a person walks the walk and talks the talk you know that they've truly trusted in Christ and repented of their sins we aren't christian just because we say we are someone who isn't in a fellowship with a local church is like a free agent you know i have heard one pastor say this once they're like a brick that jumped off uh, jumped out of a wall a hand that cut itself off from the body a self made orphan a professing christian who doesn't belong to a church should come into a formal fellowship with the body of believers before they celebrate the fellowship of the body so if there is anyone here who's new new to this church and you've been visiting and you want to connect with this church i want to encourage you talk to our elders talk to the members of this church and be connected to a local church another question that we often think about is what gathering should celebrate the lord's supper many of us assume that the lord's supper can be celebrated by christians at any time at any place but what does the bible show us scripture shows us that the gathered church is who observed the lord's supper again first corinthians 11 verse 17 18 20 33 34 in first corinthians 10 verse 17 we see like this that it tells us that the supper portrays the unity of the church so it makes sense that the lord's supper should be observed when the whole church family is together the supper is the church meal and thus it should be eaten together another question that we think about is should we eat the bread and drink the cup yes this is what jesus said in matthew 26 was 26 to 28 however jesus didn't tell us what kind of bread we should have what kind of wine we should have that's where many times we pay attention to but jesus said there needs to be a bread and wine because it points to a truth 
how often should churches celebrate the lord's supper the bible tells us we should do it often do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me first corinthians 11 was 25 paul's reference to the corinthians doing it when the church comes together you know actually suggests that they did it each week a good cross reference to this is acts 20 was 7 on the first day of the week they gathered to break bread this is the biblical practice that we see in the new testament so it is important that we keep in mind that we should participate in the supper often the church should participate in the supper often should the lord supper be celebrated in the context of the context of a meal maybe because it appears that's how the corinthians did it but listen to me does the new testament require this absolutely no jesus only commands us to eat the bread and drink the cup a full meal or a potluck or whatever that is is in the essence of the supper the essence of the supper is the two elements here and what it points to and finally what should we do during the supper you know jameson in the same book encourages to do four things that i thought was very helpful and even uh, this the whole council of god that we're following bill mounts also talks about something similar to this and these are the four things that you and i can do when we partake of the supper firstly look to the cross we should look to the cross because the supper is meant to show us the cross again and again because we need to be reminded of jesus's death for us again and again his suffering his grace and his mercy is displayed magnificently on the cross and we need to be reminded of this so when we partake look to the cross secondly we should look around because Jesus's death is meant to make many one it's not a private devotional experience that you and I should have we should not only close our eyes and confess our sins but brothers and sisters let me encourage you open your eyes and look around and marvel at all those who Jesus redeemed and because of which it's important that if we have sinned against a brother or sister we should confess that to them you know it's important that we should make amends with our brothers and sisters before we partake because the partaking of the supper is what paul says brings many into one right there's unity in the supper divisions disappear as we together as a church gaze at the savior thirdly we should look inward because we have sins that we need to confess to god You know Jesus's death offers us forgiveness because we need it. But we should not stop with our sin. We should not let guilt pile up and overwhelm us. Brothers and sisters, the Lord's Supper tells us that because of Jesus's death our guilt is gone, our sins are removed, our punishment has been taken, our debt is paid. Many times we come to the table and we're like, "Oh man, I just had a terrible week. You know, I didn't do this. I didn't do that. I'm I shouldn't partake of the supper." Maybe if you feel like that, I want to encourage you. Don't just allow sin just you know pile up in your life and leave it there. Confess your sin and celebrate in the supper because Jesus, through Jesus's death, you have forgiveness. Isn't that encouraging for all of us? we have forgiveness through jesus we who are unworthy are made 
worthy. So as we look inward and we confess to God, we confess to God by looking back to the cross because that's where we find forgiveness for our sins. And finally, we should look ahead because there's a final and ultimate meal that is coming. Revelation chapter 19, verse 6 to 9. A final aspect of the Lord's Supper for us to consider is what we read in Matthew 26, verse 29. Jesus tells his disciples that he'll drink wine with them again in God's kingdom. This, mean that, this means that the supper doesn't just look back at the cross. It also looks forward to Jesus' return and coming of God's kingdom. It looks forward to the time when Jesus will feast with his people. In 1 Corinthians chapter 11 and verse 26, we read like this, For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. In the supper, we proclaim what God did in the past as we wait for what he'll do in the future. Now, one author says like this, When we celebrate the Lord's supper, we are not just remembering the past. We're tasting the future. God promised a day when death would be done. When people from all people groups would come into his presence and enjoy his food with everlasting joy in his presence. God promised a day when our weary souls, you know, all the waiting that we would do would be re rewarded. The supper helps us remember these promises. The fellowship with Christ and each other that we share in the Lord's Supper is only a foretaste of what's coming later. Basically, the Lord's Supper is an appetizer that gets us ready for the main dish. As you eat the supper, look ahead to the feast that is coming. God is saving the best for last. So, brothers and sisters, each time we observe the Lord's Supper, may God help us to prayerfully look back and see what Jesus has done, to remember what Jesus has done for us, to look around and marvel at how God redeemed my brothers and sisters in the church. How God has made the many one. To look inward and see if there is any sins that you and I need to confess. And that should lead us to look to the cross again to see that we are forgiven. And that we can have forgiveness because of what Jesus has done. And to finally look ahead and long for that day when we will feast with Jesus. To close, few applications for us to think about. Firstly, are you a born-again believer? As I said earlier, do not walk off this hall without finding an answer to that question. It's an important question that you and I need to be thinking about. When the church comes together, Paul considers oneness as an important aspect of the Lord's Supper. So here's a question for us. Are we keen on oneness? Or are we partaking of the table in an unworthy manner? If there are brothers and sisters in the church that we don't have a good relationship with or we disagree with or we have issues with, it's important that we clear it, right? Because Paul talks about unity when we come to the table. And if we don't keep that in mind, that is partaking, partaking of the table in an unworthy manner and there is consequences for that. And finally, how can we participate in the Lord's Supper in such a way that it does not become meaningless ritual? How can we encourage one another to look through this bread and wine to the body and blood of Christ, to actually what it points to? 
that we don't come here week after week just simply to partake to check boxes but rather we truly genuinely do it with a clear understanding because paul says to the church in 11 church in corinth in first corinthians chapter 11 that you know you're not even taking part of the supper because they were taking it so lightly right they didn't give importance they didn't regard it to be important and brothers be encouraged that as we come to this table week after week this is the best display of god's love for you and me so taste it enjoy it remember him and celebrate that jesus died for you rose up again and invited you to that meal that you and i will have i want to conclude by reading my opening statement out of god's good grace god has granted us a reservation at his table in heaven in the meantime he's given us a meal to share together to help us remember how we received this reservation and to help us long for its quick fulfillment we call this meal the lord's supper let's pray heavenly father we thank you that you loved us you sent your son jesus to die for us father we thank you that there was no other way for us to have a relationship with you apart from christ's death on the cross father we thank you that when we look to the cross your love your grace your mercy is displayed magnificently for us father i pray for my brothers and sisters that we would amen we would immerse ourselves in this love and as we enjoy and truly taste your love we would celebrate you as we partake of the supper in the coming weeks and as we partake of the supper help us to remember all that you've done for us help us to remember as our brother exhorted us to remember this lord help us to remember what he has done for us help us to remember the savior who gave up his life on the cross for us father help us to you know look at each other to marvel at your wonderful um to marvel at your wonderful redemption Father, help us to look inward and see if there are sins that we need to confess. If there is disunity that we have with brothers and sisters, and give us the grace and strength to amend it, Lord Father. Father, also help us to look forward to that day when we will feast with you. Lord, I long for that day, and Father, as a church, we long for that day when we will see you face to face, and we wouldn't need these emblems anymore to remember you, but we will get to see you. our messiah the true king the lord of our life and worship you throughout eternity and to be in that table father we long for that day and we give you thanks for speaking to us through this word made bear fruit in our hearts we give you thanks and we praise in your son's precious name amen